Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I am delighted welcome to, to have the Inspiring Leadership Podcast series. Met on a of this is aimed years. for you, and aspiring leaders, Lord whatever Dr. level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your Lord careers Hastings as managers and leaders, which is whether you're in middle-ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairmen of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead a huge and your teams. Uh, you need to look at his LinkedIn profile just to see the kind of things that he has contributed to. It gives a huge amount back to the community, to society, to the world. But particularly at the moment, he loves doing things like Professor of Leadership at the Stephen R. Covey Institute. I love Stephen Covey's work, um, part of the Huntsman Business School in the USA. Uh, he's chair of the London Chamber of Commerce, Black Business Association, and he's Freeman of another uh, worshipful company. I'm in the Goldsmiths. He's in the Haberdashers. And we have a good relationship between the two companies. So there's many things. And also, I particularly want to call out that he's the chairman of SOAS University and has been an independent peer for 17 years. Without further ado, welcome. Great to have you, you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And is there anything else particularly, I mean, you've done many things with KPMG as well before that with Vodafone, but is there anything particularly that you want to make a mention of that you've really enjoyed uh, in, in your leadership roles? Well, maybe maybe just three things I would add in. Um, number one would be that uh, I have a profound love for supporting people incarcerated within a system, I think, that has now shifted from being innocent until proven guilty to being guilty without any assumption of innocence. And uh, uh, in the last, this month of March uh, that we're recording this conversation, I will be visiting three prisons, two already done and one more to come. And I spend a lot of time with offenders and ex-offenders. Uh, I'm a profound believer in restoration, renewal, and the right of individuals to be treated with dignity uh, and we are failing to do that. So to me, that is a hugely important priority. Uh, secondly, I'm a governor of a, an academy which is founded by Vodafone Safaricom in Kenya, in Nairobi. Uh, and I have a huge affection for the academy and its work. Uh, it, uh, we have around about 850 of Kenya's most extremely poor and destitute children uh, coming from very poor families. And they get a superb, high-quality, full education all the way through secondary school. It's a boarding school. It's a no-fee environment funded from the profits of the money transfer system called M-Pesa, which belongs to Safaricom and was created by Vodafone and the UK government. Very, very proud of that. And then thirdly, I have an enormous, enormous joy at being able to affect change through Parliament simply because I associate myself with causes and with people. And because of those associations, things happen for them. Mm. And I write letters of reference or I host events. I, you know, I do my usual speaking and questioning and voting. But behind all of that is the opportunity to use the facilities creatively for charitable causes, public institutions, things that really, really, really matter. Uh, if I were to go through the list, it's endless, but I'm proud of the fact that I've been facilitated to enable that difference for somebody else. No, uh, and that's lovely. And you've triggered a few thoughts in me. Firstly, 
I want to say what a wonderful shirt you're wearing. And it's <laughs> a lovely, it's called the presidential shirt when we discussed it earlier. And it comes from South Africa. It's the Mandela yes. style. And what's nice is that connection between you helping uh, offenders in prisons and ex-offenders and, and the fact that Mandela was in prison for so long and look at what happened to him when he came out of prison exactly uh, and and he's been you know among the, the leadership gurus that you uh, respect and you've learned from who, who are men of and women of of clay feet of clay they're, they're not perfect they've got you know they've they've made their mistakes um Mandela was one that you and I have talked about before the second one was the link with Kenya and and I'm really excited about the academy work you do there my wife and I have got on Monday the 20th, we've got a big event at the Goldsmiths Hall where we're mm. pulling together different charities in, in partnership and um, uh, to, to help each other, the Department of Work and Pensions, serious organised crime from the police to help vulnerable women uh, move from being in terrible situations, probably in the, in, in the crime scene, to get them out of there and give them a chance in life. And with the Department of Work and Pensions, helping them get into employment. So we'll we'll have a chat afterwards about that. But um, we also do international work through the Inspiring Leadership Foundation, which my wife founded eight years ago, with particularly Kenya and South Africa. So in South Africa, in KwaZulu-Natal, um, uh, Wazamoya is one of the charities, and we were working, uh, we both went down there uh, with the Zulus in their little little huts and that microfinance and, and helping them uh, really get their chance to learn about tech so we we mm. put a, a shipping container in there with a computer uh computers for them so that they can in a, in a valley where there's 80 percent unemployment they've got the chance to perhaps get to durban or learn technical skills that would take them out of it and then kenya we care deeply about we were in some of the most impoverished parts of uh kenya in nairobi and and we found we were safer in the poorest parts of mm. Nairobi than we were if we visited people in their gated communities, which were targets, obviously. And they all looked after each other in their tiny little homes, which were, you know, the space of my room here would have about four homes. And, and but they would all keep it absolutely spotlessly clean and look after each other. If anybody did anything wrong, they would all call out that person because they wanted to keep things well. So we worked with Hope for Teenage Mothers, um, which was uh, helping young mums who at 13 were getting pregnant having babies to finish off their own education so uh, we helped with the crash facilities there mothers to mothers which is a, a a community across the world which is helping other mothers and then team kenya um so yeah we we relate a lot to that so let me just make two comments about about nelson mandela who i did meet twice in london i was was very honored to have a short space of conversation with him the first thing is that he the reason why i love to wear these shirts is it reminds me of something that he said which has been resonated all over the world which is that education is the most powerful weapon to change the world mm -hmm. and we focus an awful lot on the weapons of war especially in the immediate context and how devastating destructive uncomfortable nasty they can be but changing the mind and after all even the current war conflict that we're looking at came from decisions of the mind changing the mind is the ultimate weapon of control mm. and education is the weapon to enable the mind to be released 
from its doom into its great delights. So that's the first thing. Second thing is one of the quotes that I often carry around with me, a Mandela quote is, I learned, he said, this is with 28 years in prison, 18 actually in prison, 10 under house arrest. I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Mm. And it's very important, especially for men, to stop pretending that you're not sweating buckets of mm. panic, mm. but then you'll work it through. And after all, he's a testament to 28 years of working through to then get from incarceration to mm. presidential life. Uh, such such powerful words. And, and I think of two things that you've triggered from that. One is I've just finished reading Across an Angry Sea um, uh, by the, the then um, company commander of D Squadron of the SAS. And, and he talked there about the moments when they were, were frightened and scared and stuck on glaciers where the helicopters had crashed or being blown out to sea in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. Um, and uh, he was, you know, really making this point that people in who one would imagine hugely courageous and fearless are often very scared, but just they recognize the fear and uh, feel the fear and do it anyway. One of the practices I've got myself to do, which you may smile at, um, is the uh, we have a hot tub in the garden, which is a real luxury. And I've just bought a cold plunge, an ice cold plunge. It's called a cold pod. And so I go from 10 minutes on the hot tub and I have to steal my courage to each time to go in for, I began with one minute and then two minutes. And then last night I did three minutes uh, into this plant, this ice cold plunge and sit there and do the breathing in the Wim Hof way to to do it but that your natural instinct is to avoid it, it it's going yeah. to be unpleasant and and a bit like many of the right things that we should do in society and that politicians should be doing at the moment uh, that they that they scare from it and and it, it's not nice but actually it's the right thing to do and of course the benefits that come from hot cold treatment is very good for your immune system and your circulation many things but uh yeah it's a little daily daily practice of courage mm. Yeah. So um, leadership has been a passion for you. Not only do you lecture about it, but you've studied it and, and you you're constantly reading around the topic. Mm. Um, I, I said to you before we started, I'd love you to mention a couple of inspiring leaders and, um, and and what qualities you feel that they show that make them inspiring leaders. Would you just mention the, the two that you think you want to call out? Well, I have a great um, a great affection for Muhammad Yunus. And uh, everybody who knows anything of Muhammad Yunus will know that this was um, a professor of economics in Bangladesh who decided, I think this is pushing back realistically into the early 1980s, that in observing people's cash poverty and knowing that it was severe, he should create a mechanism that allowed people to put cash together and essentially have an investment Bank And the Grameen Bank was created off the back of his observation, in particular, that women were incredibly good at holding money together, using money collectively, and then recovering the money in repayments. And it cannot be said for men that they are as equally good, but the women were definitely good. And he created the Grameen Bank, which is now has spread across the world, even into the developed world. The Grameen Bank 
output places in the United States. And I saw for myself the work of the Grameen Bank in New York, but let alone in the parts of the Indian subcontinent. And he he said this, he, he and I are both ambassadors, uh, patrons, supporters of One Young World. So I see him every year at the One Young World Festival. And he said, you have a choice. You can live in a world already built, or you can build the world you want to live in. And for most of us, the assumption is that which is there is there because other people knew better. And we just submit to it. Whereas actually creating the things from nothing, the new and imaginative, the compelling and the distinct, the, the choices we can make to initiate in the light of what seems to be endless plight. I think that is so refreshing because it takes us away from having to feel that there's nothing I can do. The cynicism that goes with the nothing I can do mindset. Um, the other one is Winston Churchill. And a lot of people have a lot to say about Winston Churchill these days. And I say to them, stop faffing about things you're sweating over. Just focus on the good things he achieved and for which we are eternally grateful. But this particular statement to me is very important we make he said we make a living by what we get that's our work but we make a life by what we give we make a living by what we get we make a life by what we give and our lives are not defined by our work our work is the boundary that allows our life to take its own course and the giving of things that come from work. Yeah, that's beautifully put. And and we'll call on those again, because I think there's a link nicely to the two people you mentioned to me as inspiring, particularly inspiring leaders around who you know, Paul Pullman and uh, Kate Robertson. Again, the link with One Young World. Uh, Paul having been the, uh, uh, the, the boss of Unilever for so many years and still making a huge difference as their chairman of said business school. But what about those two do you find were the qualities that you say that those are inspiring leaders? What, what, what would you call them out for? For, for Paul and for Kate? Yeah. Call out Paul because I saw him take on a macro global business, increase its, its revenue and profitability over the 10 years of his executive leadership. Not many CEOs do 10 years. He did 10 years and made his own choice to retire. So I saw him, I saw him massively boost. I think it was something like 212% of growth in profitability under his tenureship. At the same time as defining the business by its purpose. And its purpose was publicly stated to be to improve the quality of lives of a billion people on the planet. And that's not, that's not just using Unilever products to wash and and clean and and uh, and butter but it is to use the impact of the business in products and supplies in agriculture and in production and the way it employs and treats its people to improve the quality of lives a billion people now for ceo to set that as the as the benchmark of his purpose his success was so different to saying i'm going to make the market really deliver more for our shareholders and our investors. 
of which he did. So that's my bit of mm, mm. setting out purpose at the, the court. Kate Robertson, a, a wonderful South African woman, a great friend, went from marketing at a well-known major international marketing firm to alongside a, another friend, David, pioneering One Young World. And here we are now. I think we're in year 13 of One Young World, 13 or 14. And this year, 2023, we will be in Belfast in recognition of 25 years of of the Good Friday Agreement. And we've been literally all over the world with One Young World, gathered up a cohort of many, many tens of thousands of effectively brilliant young men and women who are in their 20s to 30s, all of whom now have a sense about how you make transformation and effective delivery happen as compared to just being passionate. Students are, you know, I'm chairman of a university and former chancellor of another university and Students are full of go get it, go get it, go get it. And then the minute they get out into the working world, they kind of, oh, I've lost it, I've lost it, I've lost it. And by the time they get into middle age, they've done. And the rest of life is just a slide down. And what we've tried to do and what Kate as the CEO of One Young World has done so effectively is to create this mechanism that allows both tutoring online, but also engagement at the conferences every year that keep this cohort of 2,000 plus going with energy, insight, dedication, motivation. That's fantastic. Well, I look forward to getting to meet both of those in, in person uh, as your recommended guests on, on this show. And thank you for, for calling those out. Now, today is about your life experiences, the mistakes you've made, the things you've learned. And I'm, I'm fascinated by what shaped you, you know, early childhood. I mean, this drive that you've got, you know, people normally sort of slow down to a slow death. You're, you're accelerating through life. Um, and, and it is very inspiring for people like myself and others around whatever age and the things that you get involved in. Uh, what shaped you? Who shaped you? Perhaps if you take just five, 10 minutes to tell us a bit about your life and the events that have shaped you and the values that you hold because of those things that happened to you. Well, I, I never get I never got to meet my grandparents who were uh, birthed my father in Angola in Luanda, capital of Angola. Um, they were medical missionaries, as I understand it. I have pictures. And so they built a clinic and then a school and then a church. Their personal faith was immensely strong and was a guide point for my grandfather, especially who was a medical practitioner to go to a country really in the 18, you know, the 1800s uh, and late 1800s and to be part of providing direct medical and care assistance and building up a community that was going to shape the country to the future. Now, of course, Angola is a hugely profitable petrochemicals country. Um, but I'm so proud of that heritage of faith, dedication, discipline, professionalism. Uh, my father, of course, uh, met my mother in Jamaica. So my father, born in Angola, educated in the UK um, in Somerset first and then in Edinburgh University, became a doctor and then specialized as a dentist and a dental surgeon, went to Jamaica, met my mother, who had a Panamanian father and a mother of a Ghanaian heritage. And they then became my mom and dad, as it were. But I was born... In England, but what I observed of my mother and father was was a very powerful dedication that taught me 
perpetual lessons. I mean, I'll just give you just two. Uh, so I, I remember g- bursting into my mother's bedroom, parents' bedroom, and there was my mother putting her putting her clothes on and she was putting her brassiere on. And I noticed that it was a bit, it was very frayed. I was probably about 10 years old. And I made a comment. I said, mom, that, that wire that's sticking out there, that's going to jab you. And, that, that'll hurt. and I said, why don't you just buy a new one? And my mother looked at me and she said, no, Michael, your father and I have decided to set aside every spare penny we have for yours and your brother's education. So no, I'll put up with it, I'll make do with it, and I won't buy a new one. Wow. That was really impressive to me and impacted me enormously. And then I I remember too, when after the Jamaican economy around about 1970 to 1972 had really gone pear-shaped because of bad political decision-making, and, and the supermarkets were dried out and people were really at a loss as to where this country, which was once so great, was going. And we received, uh, most of our relatives had disappeared abroad. People had, who had money had left. My father said, no, we're going to stay. We stayed. And I remember a big box arriving. And we picked it up from the post office. It was a box that contained things you couldn't get in the shop. So the three things that were in the big box which had come from relatives in Canada, were soap bars, onions, and apples. Wow. That's a very strange combination. And I imagine the apples probably didn't taste that nice after being close to onions and soap, but never mind. And when we went home, my mother opened the box and proceeded to take out one soap, one onion, one apple, one soap, one onion, one apple, one soap, one onion, one apple. And she was putting them all over the place and putting little bags around them. And I said, what are you doing that for? And she said, well, that one is for the man up the road who doesn't doesn't uh, have any children to look after him. Or that one is for the lady down there. Or that one is for the gardener. Who goes, that one will be for Auntie Sarge. That one. And by the time she'd done all the this, we had one left. So for us... There was one soap, one onion, and one apple. And I said, but mom, there's only one left for us. And she said, that's all we need. And again, I learned so importantly that that's all I need. Contentment was something I squared up to in the early days. So that profoundly important influences. Secondly, uh, I made a dedicated faith commitment to follow Jesus Christ when I was the age of 14. And my brother, who had made a step of faith a year before me, came back from our school, Scarisbrook Hall School, in the summer holidays, 1972. I was so impressed when my father asked him, Daniel, say grace, pray for us before uh, our dinner. And my brother actually spoke to a real person, not a formulaic church prayer, a real person. That touched me so deeply that I wanted to know what had happened to him because he wasn't like that before. And I discovered that he had found this energizing faith and discovered that Jesus was a real person for him and that he really got to grips with what the scriptures have to teach. And I asked him to help me to understand that. So I made my own profoundly important faith commitment at 14 and then went to this amazing 
school where the disciplines of good thinking and good life and good behavior were just so embedded into us. And I really, that, that affected me so strongly. And then at the same school, this would be the last point I make on this, is a, my very dear friend uh, at the time, also called Michael, asked me the question, what do you want to do with your life? And the tendency is to think, oh, I want to be a scientist. I want to be a mathematician. Oh, I want to be a this. I want a doctor. I want to be a... No, that didn't go through my head. What went through my head was my purpose. So at 16, I stated my purpose. Out it came without me even having to think about it. I want to speak up for the poor. I, and I want to bend the power of the prosperous to the potential of the poor. I want to speak up for the poor. I want to bend the power of the prosperous to the potential of the poor. And that mantra has never left me. But people ask me every week, and I, uh, I constantly remind them, it's something I committed to. It's something I've stuck with. It's something I do. It shapes everything. And the journey of growth is, as it were, growth, privilege, position, business engagement, resources, uh, titles, all of that has only made me more determined and more engaged with the poor. Wow. I love it. I absolutely love it. And it's it's very motivational. And to have something, firstly, to find your faith uh, back in 72 from you know the inspiration of your brother, and secondly, to have a, a life purpose, a calling, a vocation, a dharma um, that, that you have strongly followed from, from that very young age is, is really important. And in fact, links my other question. What bit of advice do you wish you'd had at that age when you start out, when you were 16 to 18, knowing what you know now? What bit of advice do you wish you'd had back then? This is important, but don't worry about that. What If you'd gone back to the future and met yourself, what would you have given your advice? Well, ironically, let me quote the Dalai Lama. Um, I, I love this this quote, and this is what I wished I would have known at 10, well, I, you know, 10, 11, 12, 14. People, he said, people were created to be loved. Things were created to be used. The reason why the world is in chaos is because things are being loved and people are being used. Wow. And that, for me, speaks to the importance of a people priority for the poorest. You know, when, when COVID came and crushed us in the developing developed world in the in europe in the west and, and people lost lives in many many hundreds of thousands and there was five, five million five million people died uh, worldwide uh, it's five million worldwide five million mm -hmm. that five million death toll is smaller than the annual death toll of children under six in the developing world who die because of water-based diseases every year and we found the money to be able to get vaccines get treatments hold our economies together rightly but we battle to find the money to liberate the poorest and the most destitute and the those struggling at the margins my very good friend david beasley who is the secretary general 
of the World Food Programme. Wonderful Governor David Beasley, Republican governor of South Carolina, a uh, wonderful man. And ironically, uh, I have to pay tribute to Donald Trump for one thing, which is that he appointed David Beasley to the position of chief executive or executive director of the World Food Program, which is the world's largest UN not-for-profit agency turnover somewhere in the region of about 12 billion a year funded by the governments of, of the world and literally delivering hard cash food aid direct to the mouths of people. And he points out that the starving figures, partly because of COVID, to a large extent because of COVID, have actually gone up. Mm. So whereas the world was on a good trajectory downwards, and we're so grateful for all of that, we're, we're, we're back up now at the billion level. So one in eight people in the world doesn't know if today they will eat. They don't know that. And if they do eat today, they may only eat once. And what they may eat today will not be what we would dispose of as, as the end cuts from good steak or chicken or fish or vegetables. No, they will eat what is the scraps of what we wouldn't even look at. So we we still have a broken world that needs that focus on the poor. We we very much do, and having an understanding of some of the challenges we've got, uh, and to be able to think of the one in eight, it is is very very powerful and a, a real wake up call. Um, I think, of course, the the Russian invasion of Ukraine which was the breadbasket for the world and the world food program got so much grain from russia and from mainly from ukraine to many of the african countries they're not getting that food anymore and when i visited sri lanka before uh covid19 i kept, uh, my wife and i got to know a, a, a sri lankan family he was ex-military so we made a bit of a connection there he was working in the hotel this little uh small sort of bed and breakfast hotel we were staying in uh, and he took us to meet his family. He showed me around the island and I, uh, we made some donations to help his family because we, we saw the kind of situation they were in. But he's kept in touch with me. And Sri Lanka has been devastated by COVID, uh, oh. the, the oh. disruption to the, uh, their tourism. They relied heavily on China to help them um, build roads and things like that. But there was so much corruption that the politicians got very rich on the Chinese connection. But basically, China's now going, well, we want our money. And they go, well, we haven't got any money. They go, well, we'll have some of your ports. So they've actually taken over parts of the country and running it with their People's Liberation Army employees who just happen to also be weapons trained. Uh, it's, it's quite a disturbing change. But he's saying that much of the food that they used to get coming in from Ukraine isn't coming anymore. Yeah, uh, It's a really quite a problem. Um, so... From that, to, to look at a couple of things for you personally, uh, happiest, proudest moments in your life and also a darkest moment in your personal life or in the work you did and what you learned from those two imposters that Rudyard Kipling would say. <laughs> Definitely imposters. Um, happiest moments in my life. I have an abundance of those. Um, let me pick one off the top of my head. I mentioned at the very beginning that I have an enormous joy in regular monthly prison visiting, being with prisoners and seeing lives transformed. And before 
this conversation with you, I was reading yet another long six-page letter from a man held, uh, obviously against his will for a crime he did commit, but then trying to unpick, unpack circumstances to me. And what I get enormous joy from is watching the journey of change that men go through. Uh, I won't give names specifically for the protection of those individuals, but there are there are a number of them who I speak to on a weekly basis who have agreement with the prison to call me at selected times. And I've watched some of what the wider world out there would describe as the worst of people. And their crimes are very serious. We're talking about life-removing crimes. The worst of people turn into angelic, trusted friends. And that gives me enormous joy. And I relate to many of their mothers um, who are happy that they have someone who is a close mentor to them. We visit with them. My team, my overall prison visiting and engagement team where we play football as well and other things is around 32. So we we take a lot on in the six prisons that we work closely with. So I, the happiness I gain on a regular basis every month with these conversations, with these letters, with these visits, it's huge. Yeah, and and, and I really do uh, applaud you for what goes on. And, and it's very interesting, back to your life purpose, uh, uh, speaking up for the poor and, and bending the potential of the rich to help the poor, or words to those effect, aren't exactly your, your purpose. But it is interesting in all the research that goes into what gives people's life meaning and purpose. It's not making loads of money, paying off the mortgage. It's actually doing things for other people where yes. you see a transformation in their lives. And, and you and I are both lucky in different ways that this is our calling. This is our vocation. Mm. Um, what was the darkest moment uh, and, and in your work or your life and what did it teach you? I think the, um, the darkest moment, which immediate, which came to mind, and again, you know, in 65 years, there's an awful lot of dark moments. Um, but the darkest moment that came to life was when I was at KPMG. I'm very proud of the 13 years I spent as a global director for citizenship at KPMG, working across the whole 160 plus countries. And I was asked to by Professor Jeffrey Sachs at Columbia University in New York, who's the architect of the Sustainable Development Goals and the Millennium Development Goals. If I would go, if we would go, KPMG would go, I would go to a little village called, well, just to the, the top right-hand corner of an island off the coast of Tanzania, Mishawena village on Pemba Island. And I said, why do you want me to go there? I mean, it seems like forever away. And he said, it's the worst community of 10,000 most extremely destitute people I have ever seen anywhere in the world. And he'd been everywhere in the world. And I cannot get a government or a company or anyone to take any interest in transformation. People literally dying of disease and tropical disease and sanitation, uh, vileness. And I went there in 2008, took my younger son with me, who was just 13 at the time. And 
I have been to, I'd been to bad places. I mean, bad economically, not bad people. But here was infestation and hopelessness and total abandonment. And you can't, you, you, you can't see that and just go get back in the car and drive off again, partly because it's a long journey back to anywhere, uh, many hours, but secondly, because you're just overwhelmed and you realize how careless uh, I can be with my day-to-day -day privileges, my so-called gratitudes. I just take them for granted. And so I ended up taking the case of these 10,000 people, this community on the edge of an island that 99.9% of .9 people have never heard of. They know of Zanzibar, tourist island. They don't know of Pemba. They don't know of Mishawena village. And they don't know of those 10,000 people. And I, I took this to the board of KPMG. And I remember the three very important questions I was asked by by very important senior partners of around the business was um, first question was um, where is the strategy? And I said I don't have a strategy. Secondly, where is the budget? I said I don't have a budget. And thirdly, was why should we do this? And I said because we can. It's as simple as that. You just let me get on with it. We will work at it. We'll raise the resources from around the network and we will deliver the change that is needed for those people. It's an imperative. And what was so dark for me then was there was always that possibility that they would say no. And I would have to deal with the trauma of what we'd experienced. And they said yes. And that took nine years of relentless work uh nine years of working at it and before i retired i made a visit to that village community again i went every single year and um we took auditors and, and strategists and others and so proud of what's been achieved inside mm. set free maternal care hospitals schools for girls toilets everywhere cleaned up new housing a bank a multi-million pound business i'm proud of it well done that, that is a very dark scene that you found, which you turned around. Um, wow. So Pember Island. I look forward to hearing more about that. Um, the next question is sort of about looking at the overall life that you have. If, if there was one thing you could change in your life, if you could live it again, what would that be? Or if you didn't want to think about that, what crucible moment is a big crucible moment in your life? that shaped you today on top of what you've already mentioned? Well, uh, <laughs> so the, the moment um, was uh, 1986 mm -hmm. and it was February. I was a school teacher uh it was half term i was at home doing lesson preparation at a desk and you remember back then phones were things that were on desks or on walls they were not carried around in pockets mm. 
and the phone on the wall rang. And it was someone from number 10 Downing Street. And I think, oh, me? I'm a school teacher. Leave me alone. What have I done? What lesson was so bad that it's got to the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher's ears? <laughs> a long story short, there was a conversation that had gone on in number 10 about what to do in the light of the 1981 and 1985 substantive urban riots in the UK, 21 cities, mainly large black populations, the Birmingham's Manchester. So the Moss Sides in Manchester, the Hansworths in Birmingham, the St. Paul's in Bristol, uh, on and on you go, obviously parts of Lee Chapel Town in Leeds and the inevitable Brixtons and Hackneys and Peckhams and Wembleys and so on, parts of London, where there had been huge rioting and trouble and disturbance. You remember the economy was going through massive structural change, ending old industries, breaking up state ownership, liberating for what was even then seen as new technology, um, changing habits that required innovation, but reconstruction, and especially migrant and, and immigrant populations were the worst. They came off the worst with this. They didn't have the skills to be pushed into the new with ease. And there was a lot of unemployment. When unemployment went very high, and especially black populations felt the hard stick of nasty racism, which, you know, sad to say, still pervades now to this day in so many what meant to be positive public institutions like policing and justice. But it's not. And they felt them acutely then. Big riots, 1981, big riots, 1985. And the prime minister, to her great credit, had wanted, uh, she, the question I'm told she asked was, do any of you here, referring to her cabinet and advisors, do any of you here know anyone black who can help us? Now, let's just be candid. That was not an easy question to ask in 1986 in political circles. Very different now, but one of her advisors knew me from a distant connection. And the phone rang, February 1986. And I began a journey that started literally the next day of engaging with Downing Street and the political machine and the Department of Employment and the resources of Task Force Civil Servants to be able to get reconstruction and confidence in the community and skills development and alternative resourcing and basic facilities that caused people to believe the government was on their side. And I did that for five years and I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it because again, it was physically manifesting the potency of hope. Mm. Mm. Fantastic. Well, it, it, Links in a way onto my next question, which was we're going to go around the inspiring leadership compass. You, you've uh, taught many different leadership models, Covies, uh, you know, models and, and others. We happen to have chosen one from the research that my wife Lee and I did, which is around what makes inspiring leaders who therefore are high performers, both as individuals and teams. And, and there are these eight components that we're just going to ask you a few pointers, you know, a top tip from you 
just in the remaining 15 minutes that we have. At the, the top, the true north for us is moral question, your values and your beliefs. Um, if there was one fundamental value for you that that has really helped you and when you've let it slip, you've brought it back on, what, what would that value and why would you say others it's worth them remembering to keep true to this in good times and bad? I would say that the priority for all of us is to figure out every day how to be grateful and then from that gratitude how to be generous if we are to follow the what the advertisers and promoters want to do with us on a daily basis it is to make us indulgent possessive and controlling and to position ourselves as the most important. How many likes, how many ticks, who's watching, whose profile is higher than yours and yours than theirs. That is how the world wants us to be, possess, 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 and be possessive. And the moral principle is be grateful and thankful and content and happy and then give from what you think you don't have. You know, I said to you at the beginning that uh, my faith is profoundly important to me. The following of Jesus. Not, I'm not, I'm not religious. I hate that sense of institutional control. But to follow him means to learn of him on a daily basis. And that's a choice I've made since the age of 14 that I do to this day. And he commended, Jesus commended the woman who came into the temple to give, who gave just two pennies, because that's everything she had, whereas others who gave out of their abundance. Now, of course, you want to encourage everyone to give, but someone who gives everything has really given more. Uh, so that principle of gratitude and generosity that to me is the moral principle i have to hold on to on a daily basis it's it's so true and i think of you know we, we my wife and i run many charity events to help the more vulnerable women and girls both in this country uh, and in as we said south africa and kenya and around the world uh, and i often find the very rich that i know are very mean in in that they won't give, they don't want to contribute, they don't want to be part of it, they don't want to come to a dinner or anything like that. And yet the people who have so little give so much. And I think back to my time in Nepal. I was uh, in my service in the British Army, uh, did some uh, uh, trekking in, in East Nepal, Pokhara and, around, and, and beyond there. And, and I remember they heard that there was a doctor on the mountain. And so one morning I woke up at about five with lots of noise outside my tent. There's a group of six of us on this expedition. And there was a queue of 20 people to see the doctor, who was me. Now, I, I wasn't a doctor. I'd had a day medical training and I had a bag of medical supplies for us yeah. on, our, on our trek in, in the middle of nowhere. But I did what I could. But of course, you know that when you're starting, if it's some antibiotics for a a boil that was this size on someone's leg, they've got to finish off that whole antibiotics. And then there's nothing for the next person. But I did what I could. But the point was, you saw with people there, when you went into a village, they gave you their only chicken. Yes. 
because you were the visitor to their village and it was a great honor that you were coming to their village and you felt so bad taking their only thing but that was their culture and we seem to have been so detached from that and when i was in cyprus with the scots guards i did the mountain marathon it was my only claim to fame to hold a world record for the double mountain marathon from sea level to the mountain back but we navigated across the mountain for a complete sort of eight and eight hours and nine minutes by the end of it two days but in training, we went to, to these remote spots on the Cypriot mountain, and we found the people in these tiny villages were the most kind, generous, giving people. Long way from normal, um, built up, uh, westernized parts of Cyprus, where they were just like the rest of us, selfish and greedy, and as you say, aggressive and possessive. But in the villages, they would stop you as you were running through and they'd bring out some grapes and they'd make you sit down and a bottle of wine. And, and they would they would want to chat to you and you try to converse. Uh, converse. But I, it just stuck in my mind, all your experiences, that the more civilized we become, the more selfish we become and we forget about abundance and gratitude. And, and you've triggered in me, you know, my brother David two years ago is a picture at the back there with Graham. Graham got stabbed um by a, a, another person and it, the court case is coming up so, shortly but he almost died so i'm very grateful for graham being alive and david within 10 weeks of diagnosis he was dead uh, to metastatic cancer at just 63 and uh, but it makes me grateful every day when i wake up i'm alive today i'm alive and i've got my health so what can i do in helping lee with the charity what can i do to help people in leaders Takes me on to my next question, which was purpose, PQ, meaning and purpose. You've made it very clear about your own sense of meaning and purpose. But what's your tip to others about the importance of living your life on purpose rather than off purpose? What, what would you give us a tip? Well, as I've been doing in this conversation, let me pick another quote, um, because I find them so useful. And this is John F. Kennedy, who, of course, was a great architect of the future, but assassinated within just a short space of his presidential life. Remembering it was John F. Kennedy who said, we're going to put a man on the moon in uh, 1962. And he had no idea how that was going to happen. Admitted in 1963, they didn't have a clue how that was going to happen. And it didn't happen until 1969. And here we are again in the 2020s talking about putting a man on the moon again. How ironic. Now, John F. Kennedy said this, the problems of the world cannot possibly be solved by the skeptics or the cynics whose horizons are limited by obvious realities. We need people who dream of things that never were. And I think one of the worst, most corrosive, invasive disease conditions of the mind, let alone what it does to the body, is cynicism. When we're cynical, we sneer at somebody who's a change maker or somebody who says, we can do it differently. And the cynic sits there believing that other people are to blame. And it's all about structures of systems and governments, local authorities and the company and Whoever else, cynicism is a terrible disease. Mm. It completely wipes out our willingness 
to step into anything complex. So I am an invader, an eraser of cynicism mm -hmm. wherever I see it. But, you know, one of the, and I have to say this, Jonathan, I'm sure you come across it too. I am increasingly horrified, frustrated, uh, appalled by adults of my own age, but even, you know, mid-30s even, who are so ignorant of world, national, and community realities. Mm. They're so detached. Mm. They don't read anything. Mm. They don't think about anything. They just TikTok swipe and let other people do the work. Yeah. No. It, it, oh. It's so very true. So very true. Next question, health quotient. Uh, mental, brain health, and physical health. You know, you, you mentioned you're 65, I'm 61. Um, what tip would you give to others that's helped you look after your physical and your mental health? Because like me, you will have had your challenges on both. But but is there a couple of practices that you'd recommend that have worked for you? As a, 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 another person who you do remind me of um, is... Um, uh, Oh God, his book was called, It Worked For Me, uh, Colin Powell, Colin ah, Powell. Yes, and yes. Colin Powell um, said, you know, this is her point. It worked for me. It may not work for you, but look, this worked for me. So what's worked for you on, on the mental health and, and on physical health? Well, definitely on the mental health, but it also is, is, is optimism. Um, optimism is a tonic for, for beginning, you know, like gratitude we've talked about, so many things we must be perpetually daily grateful for. Uh, at the same time, I need to be optimistic that what I see as out of control can come back into order. What I see as despairing and despised can become delightful and definitive. I've got to be optimistic. I've got to believe that better is possible. And now at the moment where we are literally right now, people are very sneery about the economy and very sneery about their own financial prospects. But if, if, if you are an optimist, you'll find ways to save and spend. You'll spend better, you'll save more responsibly, but you'll also find ways to think about how you can do things in such a way that constrain your costs and liberate your potential, rather than just say, they need to pay me more or give me more. Full hands up on that one. None of us is going to deny the legitimate right for good, solid, and generous pay. But just having money doesn't solve anything. It's how we use it that matters most. Optimism is incredibly important as a mental tonic. And as a, I think secondly is, is uh, I have a discipline about getting up very early in the morning. I aim at, I don't achieve it 100%, but let me say it. I'd probably achieve it closer to 95%, which is a 5 a.m. wake up. And wow. the reason I do that is because it gives me this essential period of time, by the time I've come downstairs, made coffee or rest of it, central period of time, which is my time. That's my reading time and reflecting time. Uh, 
And sometimes I actually do talk to one or two in the conversations between six and seven. But that period of extra space time, you end up, if you work it out, you end up actually having an eight-day week. Mm. And that means that things that people say, I haven't got time for that. Well, you have, actually. That's really helpful. Uh, and and that's fascinating. And how much sleep do you get? Because sleep is a very important thing. How oh, seven, seven to eight. That's very good. Just yeah. Go to bed earlier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no. It, when, when the sun goes down, go to bed. Uh, I think yes. It's a very, very good idea. Okay. Um, quick fire questions in the time we have remaining. Um, a top tip on people developing their emotional intelligence, something that's helped you greatly throughout your career. But but what's a top tip you'd give people? Work on this to improve your emotional and social intelligence. Well, actually, I I had to do that with someone very recently who is a, 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 a I love him dearly, a brilliant first class graduate from Cambridge University in in politics and economics. I mean, brilliant guy, phenomenal mind, phenomenal mind, and able to innovate constantly. But I realized emotionally quite um, empty. And and I, I said to him, uh, I said, if you really want to develop emotional intelligence, you need to find someone whose circumstances are so radically opposite to yours, someone utterly broken, somebody utterly in need, someone feeling the weight and shame and the pressure of their poor existence, and spend time listening to them and figure out how you help them. And literally within 24 hours of saying this to this phenomenally good, great graduate from Cambridge University, he emerged out of a building at Cambridge and there was a destitute homeless man smelling and being just, just in a terrible state who called out to him. Now, normally he would just go by and get on with his thing. But this time he turned and sat down and heard the man through, as a result of which he's created a foundation that is supporting education initiatives in Nigeria. And he's built two schools. And this guy has gone through a transformation. So all of us become empathetic, socially empathetic, when we hear and heed the voices of those who are radically opposite to us. That's, that's brilliant. And we were talking, you and I, I was giving a call out to his book, How to Listen by Oscar Trimboli from Australia. That, uh, that um, 83% of our time during the day is spent listening, but we don't really listen to people because of the speed of 125 words a minute people are speaking, 400 words a minute we're listening, and 900 words a minute that we are thinking, and that we're as we're speaking, uh, we're not properly listening, and as we're listening, we're not properly listening. We think we're good, but we're not. Um, the next one is, a, again, a quickfire question, collaborative cultural and cognitive intelligence, CQ. What's your top tip for um, understanding people who are very different from you? Well, <laughs> what, I, what I've learned the habit of doing is uh, go and eat with them. And in businesses, it's a wonderful thing to do for the boss at the top to the worker at the bottom. I'm proud of the fact that I was closely associated, very closely associated with the reverse mentoring program that began in the city of London at KPMG and then spread to the rest of the uh, the rest of the city. It's now habitual that mm -hmm. we create in prisons where we get officers to have to be silent and listen to prisoners. No orders given. You just shut up and listen. And that time that we take 
with people who are not like us, opposite to us, different role, different status, and you eat together, and in the which is what Eastern cultures and Southern cultures have always done. But in the West, our agendas are so busy that we're rushing from one thing to the next. So yeah. eat with those who don't look like you. Yeah, very good. I love that. And back to the floor is, was the series about getting people That's to go back. And, and make, but, but reverse reverse mentoring. I'm a, a great fan of that. I think it's fabulous. Resilience quotient, uh, coping with setbacks and adversity. What would be your top tip to people to cope with resilience? I mean, Crikey, you just described so many scenarios where people need massive resilience. What's your tip to people out there who are listening to be more resilient? Well, you know, we, we, we do well to feed our mind with the truth of history. And when you feed your mind with the truth of history, uh, you, you fret less about what's immediately before you. Uh, you know, the cataclysm of the awfulness of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, war in Europe has happened before. We don't downplay it, but we realize that we came through it. There's a, the, there were fights of destitution and loss and despair, but then there's a future and there's opportunity. So resilience comes, understanding history is really important. Perspective is really important. Uh, and having the, you know, the, we've got to have a positive, uh, this, I've got to say this very carefully and very slowly. We have to have a positive mindset about the need for pain and suffering. Because everything around us in our very uh, microwave society is all about how to minimize distress and pain and suffering. And yet it is through pain that life is birthed to humans, let alone to animals. It is through pain that the, the, the small seed pushes through the hard earth and gets to the top and out comes a tree that gives us fruit. It's through pain that we learn how to understand and hear others. It's through the silence that pain causes us to, to sit in, that we heed the sounds of the world beyond us. Very powerful. I, I, I take that because it's often, as a fellow Christian, I, I've often wondered, um, you know, why is there so much pain and suffering? And that, that really is a very helpful way to reframe it and think about it. I also recently, if you haven't done it, I commend it to you, did the Hoffman Institute seven-day program. I'm not sure whether we talked about it before, but so powerful. And uh, in it, you know, you, you're asked to think, who's your spirit guide? Just someone who's a guy. And, and in my particular case, I didn't expect to come, but actually it was Jesus Christ. And, and he appeared there. And there was a guy on the course who looks just like my image of Jesus, long hair, beard, that kind of stuff, lovely guy, just such a nice nature. Um, but yes, it's interesting what comes into your mind at certain times. So thank you for that. Brand quotient is the penultimate before we go into executive team's favorite book and two minute top tip. Um, how have you learned from 360 feedback on you? What would you do to keep picking up and making sure that you're not going to places and everywhere you go, everybody says nice things to you. And like the queen, the toilets are all painted and new and, and you're the chairman of this and the head of that. And so everything you get is, you know, they, they tell you what they want you to hear but how do you get feedback on yourself and what you personally can do better well i have had 360 uh particularly i had it both at the bbc and at kpmg um and i found it very very valuable and i think in both cases uh there there was a lot to be learned about pacing 
you know, when, when you're a, when you're a, a fired up optimist as I am, you tend to you tend to run a bit fast for other people, and you've got to work very hard at keeping them with you, but but helping them to want to run uh, as well, not just you pulling them, but they want to run and giving the vision. So yeah. That's a good, good tip there. Legacy. I mean, you've left the legacy of a lot of changes, whether it be on on the island uh, or or whether it's things you've done in the prisons. But uh, what would you like your legacy to be in your personal life and in your work? Somebody asked me this um, when I turned 60 and I said, I hope, first of all, I don't want to have a gravestone because it's a waste of time. I don't want anyone to come and stare at where I'm buried. Um, there's no point. But if if there was a gravestone, I hope it would say that that he contended for the multitude. He was an advocate for those with no voice. He strove to make a difference. He gave everything he could. And those who were on the margins of society's dignity, he gave them hope. Wow. That's that's very powerful. I would I would be terribly proud to have something on that on a gravestone like that. And I and I think, you know, I, I certainly feel that you're making such a difference. Thank you for all that you continue to do and that you're doing at the moment. Last couple of questions, and then we'll go into the little top tip two-minute clip. Um, touching on those quotes you mentioned before, but I'd be very happy for you to mention them again. Executive teams, if you're you're different times, whether it's BBC, KPMG, wherever you've been. How have you turned around a toxic team? In, in, if you were to give one tip about turning around a toxic team into a high-performing team, what have you done? Oh well, that's that—that that is a tough one because teams are always within the environment of the context of the wider business, and you know, toxic teams, as it were, can spread their negativity. Now, I'm grateful that in both the BBC and KPMG and all the other charities and foundations and organizations I'm associated with, I don't really have toxic teams and I haven't really had toxic teams. There's a, but, but what I am very aware of are environments where people's heads are down, their spirits are bowed, they're, they're, getting, they're getting through their day rather than getting ahead to their future. And that, that, causes, that causes a sort of, you know, we've talked about the cynicism dimension it causes people just to sort of lock up rather than light up. And uh, the, the way to do it is you, you've, got to, you've got to get out. You've got to go see. It's only when we encounter the things we're trying to change or lead on that we become a light with the possibility that they can change. Mm, that's really good. Now, you read so much, uh, as you mentioned, up at five uh and uh it's your time to read um my, my version is listening because i'm neurodiverse and so dyslexia is is, is a major dyslexia is a major challenge for me so i listen to audiobooks probably about 252 in the last three years i'm like you constantly learning um if there was a book that you were to pick on leadership and you've read so many uh, that you really particularly like which one would it be, and what's the main thing that people will get from that by reading it? Well, so this week I was teaching again Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Everybody knows that book. It's sold nearly 60 million copies worldwide and the, the most read, used leadership management tool in the world. 
But here's the book they haven't. And you can see my tabs are all over it. Yeah, uh, the, the Eighth Habit. Yeah. The Eighth Habit. Now, this is really important. And Stephen Alcovey did finish this before he died in, in 2012. And uh, the Eighth Habit is from effectiveness. So seven habits to get you to effectiveness. From effectiveness to greatness. And I won't spoil the book, but let me say this. Greatness, as Kobe defines it, is when, as a result of everything, you have found your voice and you've raised your voice. And let me underline it be by this quote from Albert Einstein, the great scientific thinker. The world, he said, will not be destroyed by those who do evil, but by those who watch them without saying or doing anything. Mm, so true. So, so we have to find our voice. So and true. Join our voice. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much. We're into now the final clip. Would you just briefly introduce yourself and then share your top leadership tips um, that you mentioned earlier? But I'd I'd like you to mention them again. The two that you from Muhammad Yunus and Churchill that you particularly liked about leadership. Over to you. Hello, well, I'm Michael, Lord Hastings of Scarisbrick, Lord Dr. Hastings of Scarisbrick, CBE. I've been given many titles at the front and the back end of my name and my life. Uh, I used to be in industry and business and in media and in marketing, but I'm now, of course, largely in universities, academia, education and transformation. My life is about working with those on the margins, people in prison and people who need optimism, hope, and potential. So these two top tips are my powerhouse top tips. Mohammed Yunus, the founder of the Grameen Bank, who said, you have a choice. You can live in a world already built, or you can build the world you want to live in. And he did that by creating what effectively is the world's largest bank for the poorest people to be able to get the resources to invest, create businesses, and be thrivable. And then my other Great loved quote is Winston Churchill, who I never met, but of course I profoundly respect, and his statue is opposite Parliament. I see it every single day when I go to the House of Lords. We make, he said, a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Mm. And all of us really want life and not just gettism. Fantastic. Well, Lord Michael Hastings, thank you very much indeed for being on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You have inspired me, and I'm sure the many thousands of people around the world who listen to this podcast. So thank you. Thank you very much. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com. Or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.